everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today I'm really excited because we're kicking off our multi-part series on local climate action. And now this is an issue I'm really passionate about, but it's also one that I've kind of had a back and forth relationship with. I've always been a very outdoorsy person and a lover of nature, but at various times in my life, I haven't always wanted to label myself as a environmentalist. You know, the title seems a bit stuffy, and when people know I'm into eco stuff, <laughs> I feel like they get really nervous to throw away a single piece of trash around me. Either that or they just start blurting out their most environmentally friendly habits completely unprovoked. Like, I promise I recycle. I, I help plant a tree once. <laughs> Um, And, you know, I actually started my career as an environmental journalist. Um, In college, I had my own blog called The Green Source News because I was uh, very, very cool in college. (laughs) And I was super interested in writing about what I perceived as the biggest crisis of my generation, which is climate change. But years of writing about all this stuff really started to weigh on me. Nothing really was happening at the federal level. The tone around climate was really bleak. And so much of the conversation was about saving the planet, which, again, I love the planet. (laughs) My idea of a fun vacation is hiking 100 miles in the woods and eating nothing but freeze-dried meals. But I also see that there are a lot of other issues facing humanity. Inequality, the rising cost of housing, the high price of college tuition, the list goes on and on and on. And so it wasn't until fairly recently that I started to get fired up about climate change again, and it really because it really was because of two big things. Um, one, I started to become really inspired by all of the great work being done by climate activists right here in Austin. You know, it really started to feel like democracy in action, like things are happening. This is the way things are supposed to work. And two, my eyes were open to the environmental justice movement and an approach to climate action that included people as well as the planet. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. In part one of our climate series, we're going to set the stage a bit, explaining why cities are crucial to climate action, how cities like Austin are working on climate plans of their own, with or without federal action, and how you can get involved in all of it. And I mean really how you can get involved. In every episode of this series, we're going to lay out very clear steps for how you can make a real difference on climate change at the local level. If you live in Austin or any other city in Texas or the U.S. Because that's another big pet peeve I have about climate communications. You know, you're usually either given action tips that are way too small, like switch out your light bulbs for LEDs. Or things to do that are way too big or vague, like run for office or stage a protest. And I'm always like, how? (laughs) How do I do that? (laughs) And of course, you know, all of us were leading these really busy lives. And even if we really, really care about climate change, we don't want to waste our time getting involved in something that's really not that impactful anyway. So that's the goal for this series. We're going to open our eyes to the many things being done about climate change at the local level, explain how it all works, get inspired about what can be achieved, and then share some clear steps for how you can get involved. To start us off, uh, let's listen to an interview I recorded with Laura J. She's the regional director for North America at C40 Cities, which is a global network of cities and mayors taking action on climate. Austin and our mayor, Steve Adler, are members of the C40 Cities Network. And Laura's going to help us answer our first question, which is, why cities? 
and what role can local climate action really play in the global fight against climate change? All right, let's give that interview a listen. Okay, I am here with Laura and we are talking about cities and their role in climate change. Um, so Laura, you're with C40 Cities. It's an organization uh, I've been a big fan of and watching for a few years now as someone who covers local politics. But explain, it's probably an organization a lot of people aren't as aware of. What do C40s do? What's like the basics? Yeah, so we're uh, a membership of um, cities, about 100 cities from around the world working together to address the urgency of climate change, really working the intersection of climate equity and and social justice and and I think resiliency. And so for us, this is really around working with with city government and working with mayors to implement the actions at the local level that really need to happen and then elevating that globally and sharing best practices and inspiring each other um, to go further and try new things and innovate. Yeah, this is such a cool idea because, you know, I am a huge fan of local action, and I think there's so much you can get done in your own community, but one downside of local action, obviously, is that it doesn't get to happen everywhere. It just happens in one place, and there's always that question about scale. How do we right. grow these ideas? If we come up with a great idea how in, here in Austin, how can we share it with others? And it seems like that's really what C40 Cities is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this, this goes at so many different levels of not only kind of the role of international organizations like C40 to take the ideas that are happening, whether it's, you know, that have sprouted from the local community and really, you know, worked its way up to council through policy or citywide programs, and then share those to inspire others from around the world, um, to really kind of mayors getting together and just really kind of hearing from each other on on you know what each other are doing in you know in cities around the world, and Mayor Adler is so active in our network and really such a fantastic leader, um, you know who inspires others not only across the United States but but really globally. And I think that that really speaks to the role of some of these networks as well in in really kind of also the impact that individuals can make at a local level by you know those projects that are happening um, that might just be in your community. There's platforms to share that you know, with Barcelona, with Buenos Aires, with Cape Town, through networks like C40 to really inspire action to happen there. And so I think that for, for me and the work that we do, it, what I find so inspiring about it is being able to kind of utilize our platforms and our, um, the organization to kind of tell those stories of what's happening and, and, you know, and really kind of work to replicate those around the world. Right. So a group of Austinites might get together and push for some policy that then Mayor Adler talks about at his next C40 Cities exactly. conference. <laughs> that inspires, you know, half a dozen cities from around the world to, to look at how they might do that for themselves. Very cool. You know, I, I want to take a step back real quick and talk about, you know, why cities in general. I, I do a ton of um, civic talks around town and I always use climate change as a great example of something you can get involved with at the local level. And sometimes people are really curious about that because climate feels like the opposite of a local issue. Sometimes it's right. like literally about the globe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but you know, what C40 cities does really well, I think is make the case, you know, not that cities can do it all, but that they have a big role to play. Yeah, exactly. And so I think first in anchoring that is that cities are the most vulnerable to climate risks. It's not only where the majority of the populations live around the world, but um, that generally means that that's where the most vulnerabilities are, whether that's marginalized communities that have been put 
you know, um, in locations that are more vulnerable because of redlining or because of lack of investment, they are more susceptible to climate risks as a result of that. Um, you know, to just their location because many are put, you know, many cities around the world are at, you know, at oceans, at ports, um, at deltas, and that makes them more vulnerable. So, so it's, it's first a like, you have to address cities because mm. of that vulnerability. Um, and then the first, their mayors and, and cities are really literally at the front lines of, of what's happening around the world. Um, and, you know, and locally, whether it's wildfire, wildfires or drought or extreme heat, all things that you know, um, you guys deal with. And, but I think on the other side too, you know, cities around the world only occupy 2% of the world's land mass, but actually use 75% of the world's energy. Wow. So, so cities actually have to be part of the solution, right? Um, and then we can't address that if not. And so within C40, we represent over 700 million people over a quarter of the world's GDP. Uh, and that is really critical because those cities have to be the ones to step forward, but also they're in the position to innovate and take those steps forward. Mayors and, and cities and city councils and local residents have that space because it is the things that you're living and breathing that are gonna change your daily lives that are the actions that need to happen. I think in Austin, I use the example of Project Connect all the time and the, really the work that's been happening in Austin to um, you know, expand and plan that you need more transportation. And that's not only critically important for climate, it's important for jobs and economic development and health um, and kind of all of all of the various reasons. Um, and so, you know, I think it's that it's the necessity plus, you know, cities have to, they're the most vulnerable. And that's really also in a space where this is where the solutions lie. They have, you know, the ability to innovate at a level that um, other scales of government don't. Right. It can be a little bit more of an incubator and, and testing exactly. out some ideas like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I was looking through, you all have um, uh, lots of reports on your website that are great, but uh, you have the one that I think was talking really about the role of cities. I can't remember the name name of it now. Oh, Deadline 2020. And yeah. I think they said, you know, it said in there that some of the, res- you know, according to research, 51% of emission reductions needed to put C40 cities on a path with the Paris Climate Agreement can be delivered through city action. So things yeah. that city might have some influence are. So there, there it's not even there is real opportunity to have serious emission reduction here. We're not just talking about something that's nice to have or something to put on a press release, but this is like, this could really seriously lower us carbon emissions. If all these cities get involved. Exactly. And I think that it's, it's not only the, the actual role that cities play in the global impact additive, you know, the aggregated impact that can be made to reach the, like the targets of the Paris agreement, but then the advocacy efforts and the steps that that can be shown about again that incubation that innovation that that you know pressuring national governments to go further um, and you know other levels of stakeholders by that by the leadership that's really shown at cities the city level and this is something that we do at C40 by bringing mayors to international events such as COP and um, you know different other UN events to really showcase and inspire of hey we're doing this work locally you guys can do it too. And we're stepping up and doing our part. Um, and I think deadline 2020, when, when it came out was for C40, this was, so the Paris agreement was passed and, you know, then there was kind of this lull of, of, you know, okay, so what does this actually mean? What, mm-hmm. what, what targets do these actually mean? And so 
Um, for us, it was, so what does this actually mean for cities? What do they need to do? And that's when we put out that report that really said, hey, there's a significant impact that all of you can make. And now we're going to work with all of you to ensure that you're on the path to do that. And last year, Austin passed their climate equity plan, which is you know, an amazing target of climate neutrality by 2040. It's really centered in racial justice. It's, I think, you know, such an incredible example and in really working to kind of inspire other cities around the world on what climate planning can look like and how to really get on that pathway that I think starts as part of that larger framing of collectively, if we all do this, we can make significant impact and we can help, you know, ideally move the world towards those targets as well. Yeah, I, I want to talk about some of the like the brass tacks here, the basics for when cities are looking at, OK, we we have a goal, you know, we want to help reach those Paris climate emissions. We want to you know be carbon neutral by a certain date. Um, what are the things they look at? What are what are like the big building blocks that make up a, a solid climate plan? What do they tend yeah. to involve? Yeah, absolutely. And building blocks is a very good framing to of it because it involves buildings um, and <laughs> infrastructure. And so I think from kind of a very practical brass tax perspective, right? Cities start really by measuring where are their emissions currently in their city? And that usually it comes from major sources such as transportation, buildings, um, utilities, uh, waste, you know, various sectors to really understand where are we? And then do modeling that, that puts kind of pathways of different options to policy interventions that are gonna help get there, get kind of to certain targets. So there's you know, scientific rigor in really how um, a city really works through where, how do we need to go from where we are today to where we need to get to? And then it's really about, and this is where, you know, I think Austin has done such a fantastic job at really centering that in, in equity and particularly racial equity and really working with the local community to say, okay, so we need to be ambitious, but also we need to, you know, uh, address like a lot of the socioeconomic and cultural needs of the city. And what does that look like? Let's, let's co-create this. Let's, you know, make sure that, that all of the solutions we're looking at are really centering equity. Um, and so we're not, you know, all of our programs are really thinking about that and making sure that you know, it's not disproportionately impacting certain populations. It's really being purposeful about, um, you know, making sure investment is going to vulnerable communities or that there's empowerment to communities that haven't had that before. And so I think that it's, it's a really great example of how to take the kind of the robustness that is needed and really integrate it into what, what the kind of the, the situation and, and, you know, what the context of the city is. Right. So, so, you know, what I'm hearing is if I'm a resident and I'm interested of some city in the U S and I'm interested in climate action, maybe my first step could be to see if my city has a climate plan. Yeah. Um, and if they don't maybe encourage, start to encourage that process happening, but if they do have one, it seems like there are opportunities either to get involved in the continuous yep. creation of it. Cause a lot of times I know these are evolving documents. They get updated frequently. Um, and in order to have that equitable component, component. I know a lot of cities are looking for more citizen engagement, more community involvement. And then I guess also if they have it, it could be making sure that we're actually instituting the policies that are in the plan, right? That's kind exactly. of the, the tricky yeah, that's next, the next step. step. <laughs> right. The next step is, you know, accountability is making sure that, you know, um, things are getting measured and, and implemented. And I think that that's absolutely right. You know, see if your city has a climate plan, see what programs are coming out of the city that really are helping address climate change and get involved. I think that there's 
there is an ample amount of stuff happening in so many cities across this country. Austin really, you know, one of the leading ones. Um, but I think also, you know, there's no, there's no wrong level of, of action to take, right? You know, like a, a block coming together to do some work is, is still part of action, right? And so I think don't feel that scale needs to, you know, be an impediment because I think there's, you know, as I was saying, it all kind of needs to match up together. Uh, and that, and it can start from a block coming together and saying, we're gonna do, you know, a solar purchasing agreement or something, or, you know, we're going to do a community garden. We really want to get engaged in local food production. And, you know, I think that all of those steps then from that, there's ways to engage with the city because the city wants to, you know, encourage more of that to happen. And that might then lead to kind of other sharing about from other neighborhoods or a program starting from this at the city that's supporting whatever that may be in other ways. So I think, you know, um, thinking small can be really, again, it allows innovation and nimbleness and can be really impactful, not only in the city, but again, can actually help spur this to happen in other cities around the world from networks like ours. Right. And, and so when we talk about each of those areas or building blocks of the climate plants, the big sources of emissions, they tend to be pretty similar in most cities, right? Yeah. Um, I want to like kind of run through some of them. So energy is obviously a big one. Yeah. Um, here in the city of Austin, we're fairly fortunate and unusual for the U.S. We own our own electric utility. It's yeah. publicly owned. And so our city council has been, you know, really ambitious in transitioning our entire utility to renewables, which means that all of us, our carbon emission goes down just flicking on the light, right. you know, right. what the, what's powering that. We don't have to do anything. Um, the activists who push for that obviously did, but that's fairly simple. But what do you see other cities doing um, around energy? What are what are some of the policies and programs that are popping up to reduce emissions? Yeah, so a number of them. And, and I will say that Austin is in a very unique position, but there's also still so many other things to do. And, you know, the, the typology of the city, and this is why programs like, you know, initiatives like Project Connect are so important. Um, the, to the typology of the city matters, you know, so much to it at how your emissions um, yes. what your emissions profile looks like. So a city like Austin is going to have a higher emissions from transportation than New York City, for mm -hmm. example. Um, my background's in urban planning, and so I will spare you the, <laughs> the <laughs> urban planning history of cities in the United States. Um, that could be for another time. But uh, so, the, so tra reducing transportation emissions becomes incredibly and critically important for a place like like um, Austin. And that's why, you know, you see in the climate plan a lot about multimobility and again, Project Connect and, you know, all of these things that are going to really support that, but also have all of these other benefits to the city. And I think that that's so much of what, what is anchoring about it, kind of what are in these plans and the actual actions that, that are needed to take. Um, something else that's really happening in a number of cities really as it's around buildings. Um, and so particularly in northern cities in the United States that are older, that have very leaky, inefficient buildings, existing buildings, um, the cities are passing policies to, are called building performance standards mm -hmm. that are essentially um, creating a mandate in a way or a, uh, you know, a penalty um, if building owners don't retrofit their buildings to uh, reduce emissions, which generally means electrification. Um, many of them are running off of, um, of gas. Mm -hmm. And so New York City has passed uh, building performance standards, St. Louis, Boston, Washington, DC, 
Um, and so um, most recently, actually, the White House just announced kind of a coalition working with a number of cities to really try to increase the amount of, of kind of policies that are really helping address emission reduction in buildings. Um, and I think that for a lot of cities it, right now, it's really critical. And when New York passed it, it also passed PACE financing to really ensure that um, lower income building owners could access financing that would allow them to make the retrofits. So having programs like that in place is really important for cities um, as they look to expand and implement these policies. But for a lot of, you know, denser, older cities, um, I'm based in Chicago, it's, you know, similar, similar thing in Chicago, buildings are one of the most critical pieces. And so, and really transitioning not only new buildings um, and putting in codes in place that are going to address, you know, new buildings being built at, at zero carbon, but really retrofitting existing buildings and making sure that there's the programs, whether it's from the states or utilities or the federal government or the city um, that really kind of help address the, the upfront cost of that transition. Yeah. And what does it mean to kind of be a zero carbon building? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's a, you know, there's the lead rating system and mm -hmm. various other rating systems that kind of help mark what it is, but usually, you know, it's high efficiency. So in terms of like the machinery that's used in the building is, uh, very high efficiency. The materials are, you know, low carbon materials that the, you know, sealant around the building is really making sure that any, you know, kind of, of the, everything that's in the building, the indoor air quality, the, you know, thermal comfort is really protected. So passive house standards is also kind of another um, really way to another kind of rating system or another, you know, way to look at this. Um, and then generally, you know, the, that the power that is powering the building is zero carbon. So whether that's um, through, you know, uh, purchasing renewable energy credits, it's electricity that is clean electricity. Um, you know, it's using equipment like heat, like heat pumps, um, which is a technology that is really kind of at right now, the main one that's being used to really transition off using of gas or to use electricity for, cause that is such a major source of the emissions within buildings. Um, so, so there's a number of things that, that are kind of being done on that and, you know, different depending on the location as well about kind of where, where the net zero design component needs to be emphasized the most. Right. And I suppose the hope is too, that if you're retrofitting buildings, they might be more pleasant to live in after exactly. they might reduce right. tenants, electricity bills or heating yes, bills. Absolutely. And that is very much the intent is, is that, and, and you've seen that, you know, I think generally overall is that it reduces, um, it reduces the, you know, the electricity bills and the, you know, heating bills of, for the building, they're healthier places to be in. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is one of the areas that right now is getting a lot of um, promotion in the media is really the use of, of gas in buildings. So a gas stove has terrible air quality and it's for indoor air quality impacts that have kind of not been fully addressed and, or at least kind of educated and known. And, and that is also a major transition using induction stoves, um, a really important transition within, within buildings for reducing emissions.
Right. So when we're talking about energy here, you know, we have, I think the more traditional route or the one people think about is most obvious around the utilities, literally transitioning their utilities to rely on renewables. But there's also the opportunity to think about the buildings themselves, making sure right. they're more efficient. Um, yeah. And, and I guess collectively at a citywide level, this can have a big impact. Cause I think one time, you know, when people tell you just in your own home, you know, turn off the lights or buy an energy efficient appliance, it feels somewhat useful to you, but sometimes you wonder, is this matter enough? <laughs> like, does this feel small? But I guess if everyone in the city is doing it because a policy has been put in place, you can exactly. really start to see a big impact. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that it's so important, you know, people do what is familiar to them or they do as a result of, you know, because of someone that they trust. And so I think that, you know, I think that goes to electric vehicles as well, but also transitioning some of these equipment in your home, the more that you do it and then, or meet people who have done it, the more likely you will be to do it. And so that's where that kind of, that then has that, that, you know, exponential effect. Um, and so I think that that's where, you know, no action is too small is really my mentality. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the energy side. I'm sure there's a ton we could talk about there, but for trans, I want to talk about transportation because this is for Austin, our big problem. Um, this is our big, you know, growing source of emissions that we are still working on the details as to how right. to reduce them. And, you know, you've mentioned project connect. We, we did pass this really big deal landmark, um, bond in order to fund, a basically brand new public transportation system, um, which is great, but you know, it's not going to fix all of our problems. Right. It's still 10 years down the road. Um, what are you seeing cities doing around transportation to reduce emissions? What are some of the programs that are being put in place? Yeah. And so, and I think that transportation emissions too, and this is where you can't talk about transportation without talking about the current, about the pandemic mm-hmm. and what the pandemic has really done for our daily lives. Um, because I think that it's really made us rethink what our community is and where, how we move and where we move around our cities and at what time, right? Um, and so I think that there's a critical component of that. Uh, and so some things that we're thinking, you know, I think for, from a climate perspective, it's, you know, it's really about getting people out of cars and then those who are in cars are electrifying the cars. Um, and so, you know, I think within the United States right now, you see a lot from the U.S. Department of Transportation on electrification incentives um, and, you know, a lot of things really trying to move the market towards electric vehicles. And I think that is going to happen. It's going to happen very quickly. Um, but it doesn't mean that we still shouldn't be getting people out of cars. Cars still take a huge amount of carbon emissions to create, to build. Mm-hmm. But also we know that cars create, you know, cities built not necessarily around cars have a huge livability component to it that is really critical. They're healthier places to live. They have more space for people, more space for pedestrians. And I think that one thing that the pandemic has really taught us is the importance of public space in the public realm and having that space around you. And that means, you know, using streetscape in a different way, investing in parks in a new way. Um, And I think that that's also where it comes down to kind of what cities are doing. You know, a lot of cities right now are really thinking about it's, it's not a new concept at all, but I think it's one that's really arisen um, right now, really around the 15 minute city, really around getting kind of all of your essential services within 15 minutes of your home. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of, you know, the scaling down of a city in a way that like you shouldn't need to get in a car to drive five minutes to go get what you need, but, you know, really kind of localizing. So that way, yes, you may need a car to get from 
you know, one side of the city to the other, but you don't need it at the scale that you may have before because your daily movements look different. Um, and your daily movements may be more local or it's, you know, you're downtown two days a week, you're at home three days a week. And, you know, what does that look like for your daily life and your ability to move around the city in a way that is easier that, you know, doesn't require a car as many of those trips as they might have before. And so I think that that's really how cities are starting to think about it. Um, and, you know, layering in the role of public transportation, the role of electric vehicles, the role of, you know, increasing walkability and bikeability within a city. So that way you're able to make more of those decisions on your daily travel that don't automatically assume you're getting in a car. Hmm, 15 minute city. That's an interesting one. And, and, you know, I, I think when we, we look at a place like Austin, this has been like a huge contentious point with us is, is how we want to grow and develop as a city. We're growing so quickly and traditionally we've been a lot smaller city and now we're becoming a big city and that's stressful and is trying to figure out a land planning solution to that. And sometimes with that, you know, we're still continuing with that process, but it can feel so far away. Right. It's like, "Mm, I like there there's value here, but also like, we're going to have to wait. What if we have to wait so long to see the results of this, (laughs) you know, what, what can we be doing in the meantime? Or, you know what I mean? Well, and this is where I think don't underestimate, you know, the small scale solutions that can make a difference in just like how pleasant it is to walk somewhere that right. makes you as an individual want to take this 15 minute walk versus a three minute drive, a five minute drive. And this is, I think, really where the role of local action can really be significant when there are these longer term solutions that, that take longer, but so, there's something that's needed in the interim. Mm. And, you know, I think that like the work that's done on whether it's tactical urbanism or, you know, even just kind of like, um, you know, putting, you know, shutting down the street to have a street fair and people just thinking differently about the space or painting sidewalks or planting trees, you know, the amount of times that, you know, you, you are a place, you go visit somewhere and you walk down a sidewalk that you don't feel as inviting. Mm-hmm. Or you walk down a sidewalk that feels inviting as an individual makes you feel very different about your ability to take that trip as a pedestrian or as a cyclist, if it's a protected bike lane or not, your decision on, Hey, is this a safe trip for me to make is really going to be influenced by that. And some of that stuff can be infrastructure changes or really small scale changes that can happen very quickly that help people think differently about making those decisions. And so That's where I really think like taking a look at your community, look at the streets, look at, you know, look at, think about the areas where you don't feel comfortable walking down the sidewalk, but like, or there's an impediment that is a simple solution, whether it's there needs to be a crosswalk or there needs to be a stop sign or something that's just going to make it feel safer for you. Um, I think can, you know, those small scale things are, are stuff that can, you know, start to really make those changes now and not necessarily wait for, you know, the 10 year, um, longer term change. Right. Okay. So that's energy transportation. What would you say kind of rounds that out as far as biggest sources of emissions? Is it waste yeah, kind so of gen- next on that list? Yeah. So generally waste. Um, and it's so, you know, buildings, energy, I'd kind of like are fairly separate, but I, you know, I'll, I think it's, we can bucket them together here for, um, and you know, so the other one is really around waste. And this is, you know, um, many cities in the United States have recycling systems that are, you know, pretty well, pretty robust, you know, composting is obviously something that 
is taking off more in cities, will I think hopefully continue to, but um, it's a challenging business model, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that that's where it's really important for individuals to, you know, do that on their own, whether it's they can set up a backyard composting system. Um, you know, one of the most recent IPCC reports, which was, you know, it's the kind of international report of scientists saying this is the current state of the climate. Um, and usually kind of, um, you know, sounds alarms. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the most recent reports really indicated how much methane is a major, um, a major source of emissions to contributing climate change. And methane is generally created as a result, not exclusively, there's a big agricultural component to it, but food waste in landfills. And so taking food waste out can make a big impact. So, you know, whether it's you set up a home composting system or you bring that compost to the farmer's market like I do, or, you know, um, I think that stuff is really important and it helps change your behavior in a way that makes you think about waste in a different way. I know that was really important for me as we started composting of just like, you know, the act of putting a banana peel in the trash made me feel wrong, you know, right. and it, and it makes you, it makes you kind of think about your daily decisions, um, across what you do in a different way, uh, you know, through something like, like starting your own, doing your own composting. Right. And composting is the kind of thing I suppose too, that you can scale on the neighborhood level. You know, exactly. I know that a lot of, you know, that's not uncommon to have maybe a neighborhood compost pile or a community garden compost mm -hmm. pile. So you don't have to have it in your own backyard. If right. that feels too big, it could be shared. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I know a lot of farmers markets, a lot of, you know, um, yeah, community gardens generally set that, set that stuff up. Or if they don't, you know, talking about doing it because there's other ones I'm sure within the city that do. So, you know, if, if you're interested in trying to set something up locally, you know, reach out to the city, ask, Hey, who do you know other communities that are doing this? And I'm sure they'd connect you. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about the equity component of all of this. Um, you know, I, I saw on your website and you were talking about really trying to make sure that as all these cities in your network are building climate plans, editing their climate plans, they're instilling equity into them. And, you know, I saw that change here in Austin. Our first iteration of our climate plan didn't really have that. And then we basically renamed the whole thing and it's now called the climate equity plan. And they're trying to instill that more, but it's, it's a constant uh, work, you know, and mm -hmm. it's definitely one of those things that's easier to say than do. And that a lot of people like to say, but not everyone really likes to do it. And I wonder how you're seeing cities handle that because it's tricky. It's not as, you know, saying it and being intentional about it is certainly a good step forward, but it doesn't yeah. do it all the way, you know, right. it's, right. that's where it seems to get sticky sometimes. Yeah. And so I think that there's, there's a few critical components to this in really how, how this is now being implemented, right, within cities. And one, I think that it's really around being purposeful about where budget allocation goes within these mm -hmm. programs. So, you know, as a result of these plans, then you create kind of what happens. And, you know, whether we see this at a national level through kind of, you know, programs such as Justice 40, which is still being worked out, but essentially this was an executive order by President Biden to say that 40% of, of federal investments would go to low-income and vulnerable communities. Mm. And so really being intentional about saying these areas have been disinvested in. We're acknowledging that. So we need to have greater investment in them. They're, you know, and so I think that that's part of it. And we see this, you know, whether it's in where I live in Chicago, the mayor has a very clear environmental justice component of her budget 
that is, you know, really kind of clearly saying, hey, this is how we're going to be investing in certain communities. Um, and so I think that, that that piece of it's critical. I think also really um, empowering and, and coalition building and engagement that works at kind of that new level. And I know as part of the climate equity plan, the city of Austin did such an immense amount of community engagement. And that's really around making sure that, that all the voices are at the table that really help drive this and that there's shared ownership and understanding of what needs to happen. And then real continued engagement to make sure that the programs actually are meeting what was intended to be set out. Um, and, and that there's kind of a constant feedback loop of, you know, hey, is, are this meeting, is this meeting our targets and that piece of accountability that we spoke about before, I think is really important. And so, you know, I think that there's an acknowledgement that, you know, everybody, no one's doing this perfectly. There's a long way to go. And, but, you know, the, it's really important that cities and cities like Austin have taken this step um, and are really trying to put a plan into action that really is putting equity at the center. So that was Laura J. And I want to focus on one thing she mentioned in particular, which is a climate plan. Hundreds of cities across the U.S. now have some sort of climate plan on the books, with goals for emission reduction across those core categories that Laura mentioned. Electricity, transportation, and waste. And usually the plans also have some sort of list of steps or strategies to help meet those goals. And the nonprofit organization Zero Energy Project actually keeps a running list of all the U.S. cities with climate plans. And then C40 Cities keeps a list of all the cities with climate plans that are compatible with the Paris Climate Agreement. So if you're looking for a way to get involved with climate action locally, I'd recommend starting there and seeing if your city has a climate plan. If it does, look through it and familiarize yourself with your city's goals. And if your city doesn't have a climate plan, then take a look at C40 Cities Climate Action Planning Guide to Cities, which is a great online resource and basically a how-to guide for creating a climate plan in your city. You can also read through other cities' climate plans for inspiration. And we'll go ahead and put links to all those resources in the show notes. Here in Austin, we've actually had a climate plan since 2015. That first plan set a goal of net zero community-wide greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And built into that plan was a process for updating the plan every five years to keep it up to date and see if goals could be sped up or adjusted as technologies improved or the price of certain technologies changed. Just look at where electric vehicles are today versus five years ago, right? Huge difference. So then in the fall of 2021, our city council just approved the first update to that original plan, and it included a lot of changes. First of all, it boosted up our net zero goal from 2050 to 2040. And it also adopted a steeper emission reduction curve, which includes an intermediary goal of nearly halving our emissions by 2030. So really putting the emphasis on reducing emissions now. And then secondly, our plan update sought to center equity in all of the city's climate work and planning. In fact, the very name of our plan changed from the Austin Community Climate Plan to the Austin Climate Equity Plan. And what does that really mean? (laughs) To better explain it, I'm going to read an excerpt from the steering committee letter that was attached to Austin's climate equity plan. It reads, let me pull it up, quote, From the outset, we set ourselves up for success by starting this process with a series of climate justice workshops. 
In those workshops, our facilitator, Dr. Tane Ward, asked each of us to imagine the world we want to live in. This caught some of us off guard. How can we take the time to imagine an ideal world when everything is an emergency? And yet, an emergency is precisely the moment to push ourselves to create the socially just world we collectively envision. These workshops were vital to creating a culture of empathy, allowing us to ground ourselves and the entire update process in the practice of centering equity. This plan, the discussions leading up to its formulation, and hopefully how it gets implemented, just feels different. Our vision is that this plan translates into a broader shift in how Austin City Planning, or translates to a broader shift in Austin City Planning to cultivate better collaboration between the city and community and include equity at the core of every city process. You might ask, why is equity a core driver of a climate plan? With a desire to build on and acknowledge what communities of color in Austin have been saying and working on for years, the steering committee's response is, how could it not be? Currently, race predicts a person's quality of life outcomes in our community, which means communities of color in Austin are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change. End quote. And so to explain it even a little more for you all, let's listen to a short clip of an interview I recorded with Shane Johnson, co-chair of the Climate Equity Plan Steering Committee, which is a group of Austin residents who helped to actually write this plan. And Shane is also the clean energy distributed organizer with the Sierra Club. All right, let's give that interview a listen. All right, I'm here with Shane and we're talking climate equity plan. Um, I've talked to you a few times about this uh, plan in the past, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to, trying to lay out ways for folks to understand how to get involved in local climate action in their city and in Austin. And it feels like in a lot of ways, the climate equity plan or in other cities, it's called, you know, a cli- some kind of climate plan uh, could be a good place to start <laughs> understanding if your city has one of these plans um, yeah. laid out. You were involved in the, um, the latest iteration of our climate plan, right? Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about what that process was like, like being involved in creating it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was, I had the, um, I guess, honor to serve as the co-chair of the steering committee updating our city's climate plan. Um, Once, uh, or, or pretty early on, both from the community side looking in and the Office of Sustainability themselves, articulated how we wanted to really center racial equity in the climate plan. And so we ultimately um, did the best we could to ensure that racial equity um, was the lens through which we analyzed everything and, and, and uh, the ultimate goal of, of uh, what we would accomplish through this climate plan. <clears throat> so, um, and how did that, like, how did that look? How, how did you start to make that actually happen? I'm sure it was not a hundred percent what you always wanted to be, but, uh, what, how did that process, what did it look like? Yeah. So that, and that's a really good question in particular, you know, if to, to be able to parse out the difference between, a, you know, just a regular old 
climate plan that doesn't center racial equity and frankly thus is not particularly effective to compared to a climate equity plan. So um, from the get-go, it meant understanding that we, that we have to center racial equity and any sort of uh, solutions to climate change um, because racial or race rather is the number one determinant of quality of life. And so it affects every single person uh, in, you know, in terms of how we are harmed or benefited by society. And it affects every single social issue or political issue there is. Um, and in, and, uh, and, you know, in terms of, and in many ways is the number one or most uh, impactful issue in the US. And so we had to understand that if we, we needed, uh, you know, city personnel involved, we needed community members involved um, to understand that and to be able to, to practice that in how we um, carried out the creation of the climate plan, um, which looked like, um, in some ways, it actually really goes back to the creation of the city's equity office, um, because then they started training uh, Office of Sustainability staff on racial equity. Um, and then the city started doing um, regular undoing racism training, so more explicitly anti-racist training. Um, and that found that those trainings formed the foundation of the Office of Sustainability, um, really not just being okay with, but actively trying to uh, prioritize um, centering racial equity in our work. Uh, and then understanding that uh, the community members and business and nonprofit members involved also would need this training. Um, so once we formed the steering committee uh, and then under the steering committee, there are five advisor groups, all of, all, all of which were formed uh, by community members and was about 120 people. Every single person in there needed the same, needed some, uh, some of the same equity training. Um, and then it was also beneficial that we specifically uh, found a trainer who could really um, powerfully train or you know, impactfully train us while specifically applying an Austin or Central Texas uh, lens to, to racial equity as well. And so that really set the foundation for being able to, um, to do this process right. You have to, you can't, you know, you can't sprinkle on equity afterward, like some, you know, and, and try to just have it look good on the surface. It has to be embedded throughout, not only throughout the process, but even how you create the process. Mm -hmm. And so once we, once all of these trainings are in place and, and uh, community members were recruited to the uh, steering committee and the five advisory groups. Then we put, could progress on starting to actually uh, draft the uh, goals and the strategies that comprise each goal for the climate plan, as well as you know overall framing and, and timeline and um, other sections of the plan, the uh, you know context and background and a and uh, steering committee letter that I think is actually, uh, it kind of flew under the radar, but is actually one of the more important pieces, uh, sections of the climate plan other than the goals and strategy for framing the entire thing. So that was Shane Johnson. 
And we're actually going to hear more from Shane later in this series when we talk about actually implementing climate plans. But for now, let's stick to making them happen in the first place. So Shane shared another really key tip here, which is starting with equity. In fact, Shane's recommendation is actually to start by advocating for your city to create an equity office or to provide equity training for city staff and community members before even starting on a climate plan. But what if creating a climate plan through any of these traditional means, like working with city staff and getting approval from city council, doesn't really work for you? What if your city has a history of making some poor climate-related decisions, and you don't have a lot of trust that this process will actually work? And that's the question a group of community organizers in El Paso, Texas, are currently tackling. So Ground Game Texas, which is a nonprofit advocacy organization that listeners of this podcast might recognize as being responsible for putting Prop A to decriminalize marijuana on the ballot here in Austin, they've actually teamed up with a group of climate activists in El Paso, led by Sunrise El Paso. And Sunrise, for people who aren't familiar, it's the name of a national youth-led climate justice movement. And they have hubs or chapters all over the country, including in Austin and El Paso. Anyway, Sunrise El Paso got started in about 2019 in response to the buyout of um, a buyout of the city's privately owned electric utility, El Paso Electric. And at that time, Sunrise organizers were actually pushing the city to look into municipalizing the utility or turning it into a publicly owned entity. That didn't end up happening. And then later, Sunrise got involved in opposing an investment by El Paso Electric into a new fossil fuel powered plant in the region. And there's actually a really whole long story to tell there that's really interesting. But for the sake of time, let's just say the entire experience did not leave the city's climate organizers feeling like city council was serious about taking action on climate. And so they ended up getting connected with Ground Game Texas, and they launched an innovative campaign to embed climate action directly into the city's charter, and to do so as a result of direct democracy gathering thousands of signatures from fellow El Pasoans and putting the issue on the ballot for voters to decide. To tell us more about that, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Luis Miranda, the campaign manager for the Climate Charter Ballot Initiative in El Paso. Let's give that interview a listen. All right, I'm here with Luis, and we are talking about climate change in El Paso. Um, and I'm really excited because I um, wanted to have you on today because um, we've been talking a ton about um, Austin and the climate work we've been doing here in Austin, which has revolved around this climate equity plan that our city council passed um, back in the fall. And then I happened to see that Ground Game Texas is working on this climate charter initiative in El Paso. And I was really intrigued. I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm curious how they're doing things there. Like, wh- what is this looking like? So um, let's maybe start at the beginning. What is this uh, climate charter? What are you all working on right now? All right. I guess uh, I could start with the, the most basic. What is a charter? Yeah. Uh, and a, a charter is basically a constitution for a city government. It kind of defines the government at a local level and what its powers are and the divisions of that power. So the climate charter would basically be an amendment to that. It'd be an addition and it would establish a climate director and a climate department, which would be tasked with 
you know, enforcing these climate policies. So it sets solid goals. We have to uh, half emissions by 2035 and eliminate all emissions from the city by 2045 and basically reduce the city's contribution to climate change. It requires uh, um, the, man the climate director to do uh, studies, um, um, climate impact studies on city projects and on city budgets, both on ongoing projects and on proposed projects. And that would so understanding what the impact those projects would have on climate or on your emissions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I could give you a perfect example of something that happened in El Paso's past where something like this would have been very useful. There used to be a smelter in town um, from a Sarco and a Sarco tower, and it was operating for multiple decades. It, it took a lot of work and organizing from former employees who were mate who were whose illness was whose health was destroyed by working in this environment to shut it down. And when it was torn down it was kind of just knocked down without any planning, without any studying of what the impact would be. And they, they, when they tore it down, it, it shot up all this dust, all this leftover residue, and it floated into, it's right next to our university, it's right next to Utah. No. So it floated into those dorms, it floated into the neighborhoods around there, it also floated into Juarez. And I mean, people still have, you know, bags of, that they collected from their of dust, that collected in their in their um, air conditioning units and stuff is getting inside of their of their homes so i mean th that would be one way to to have the city be more responsible is at the very least to create the data of what would happen if we tore something like down like that down how can it be done safely how can we avoid affecting people's health because i mean people are also very happy that it was gone it was a symbol right. of, of, of a huge harm for people's health and at the same time, it's it's upsetting that there's that line of that thread of uh, disregard. So, right. Okay. So yeah. So we're talking about the climate charter here. You mentioned then um, having this person, you know, who would be in charge of climate action at the city. The studies. What are I kind of interrupted you there? What are some of the other things there that are on that list? No, no, it's all good. And I mean, it, it has a lot on it. I think printed out, it's about six pages. And the biggest, I think the biggest components to it is that as a green jobs program, it requires the city to prioritize uh, creating green jobs. And it, it also explicitly uh, prohibits the city from eliminating jobs. So if you have people working in, in um, an employment that is, is involved with dirty industry or, you know, that it's not good for the environment, we're not eliminating those people's jobs. They would, they would be tasked to transition them into good paying uh, green jobs. Mm -hmm. Another one of the elements is promoting solar, requiring the city to go solar. So all of the city buildings would be required to go to rooftop solar. The city infrastructure would be looking into transitioning away from relying on our energy grid, which right now is mostly being run with methane extracted from the Permian and, uh, and have the city, you know, go solar essentially and the last thing is water conservation i mean the south and the the western part of the united states as a whole is going through a mega drought and el paso is no exception and uh, you know we just want to make sure that we're preserving our water and that we're not allowing it to be sold outside of city limits for any kind of fracking operations or any other fossil fuel industry operations outside of, of city limits so those are, I think those are the three big centerpieces, but there's so many small little things. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm, I'm looking at the list here. One that caught my eye 
was this uh, creating a climate commission of local residents. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm yeah. a big like democracy person. So <laughs> I'm always curious to see like, what does it look like to engage the public in making these decisions? Yeah, so that that um, commission was come up with because we wanted there to be something to ground the director with and there being a space for community advocacy and for the community to present the challenges and issues and how they want that to be fixed, right? Because we don't want just top-down solutions. We want solutions from the bottom up. We have to identify these issues where they're at. I mean, that's why we came up with the climate charter the way we did is to identify the different priorities that different communities within El Paso have. Because even, even though El Paso is already disproportionately affected by toxic loads, even within El Paso, there's certain mm-hmm. communities that are, are more affected than others. People who live by the border and have to breathe in those uh, trucks. I believe something like um, in some of those high schools, it's like smoking a pack of cigarette a day being mm. in that high school. And I know I'm kind of running off topic there, but, um, but uh, th- the idea is that these commissions would have representatives of these communities and hold the director's feet to the fire when needed and hold the city to speak to the fire and keep the city from being out of touch. That's really the point. And it's um, it's something really exciting to have that included in there. I mean, we do have already advisory boards that are related to energy in, in El Paso, but it's it's a little different. It's not really focused on, you know, um, community uh, environmental justice or anything like that. Right. Whereas this, this would be more directly about uh, addressing and repairing damage that's been done to our communities already. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the only only the people within the community can say that and actually right. represent that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk more about how this came to be, this charter and this idea, because this is interesting. I don't see a lot of other cities doing this. Um, in Texas, the other like major cities have all gone about something semi-similar, you know, like Austin passing a climate plan more at the city council level. Um, But I think this is really interesting, this idea of creating a a petition and actually putting it in the city's charter. How did this get started and how did you all work to create a plan and a charter that you felt like was equitable and inclusive of the, you know, the broader El Paso community? Yeah, um, I guess guess it's born from that desire to municipalize way back in 2019 and pushing for that. But to be more concrete, um, excuse me, sorry, um, to, to, to be more, to go more into it, it was basically that those failures of like realizing that the city council as it stands right now will not do what's right. Mm. At a state level, they're, they're neglecting El Paso. Like the TCQ is basically a rubber stamp arm for the fossil fuel industry here. Federal level is, you know, I don't know what's going on there. The EPA recently acknowledged that our our, um, quality of air is not up to par. So, you know, it kind of was born of of the necessity of knowing that that it it has to be El Pasoans Hmm. themselves to push for climate policy or otherwise climate policy will not pass in El Paso. We need that direct democracy. And um, this happened as a result of, you know, Mike reaching out to us, Mike Siegel from Ground game, uh, Texas. And uh, Sunrise El Paso was in the middle of a campaign against um, a, a fracked gas power generator in, called Newman 6. And it's in, in this power generator 
area that's in the northeast of El Paso, right next to the border with New Mexico. And there's a, a small community there uh, called Chaparral. And so already this, this area has a toxic load. Uh, people there get, I think they call it something like Southwest Valley fever or something like that. And it's basically what happens when you have a bunch of particulate matter from these uh, generators in your lungs. So that's like the kind of ailments that people get there. And, and that we were involved in this contested case hearing to try to prevent the construction of this, of this um, generator. So th this was ongoing. Uh, Mike Siegel reached out to us and was like, hey, do you guys want to do a ballot initiative? You know, we're it's something involving climate. His, I think the original idea was to have a, a green jobs program with CARES Act money. And essentially, I mean, we kind of sat down and said, mm, if we're going to do a ballot initiative, let's, let's, let's do go, it. Let's do, <laughs> let's go all the way because CARES Act money runs out. Like this job program is limited, but wouldn't it be great if we created something ambitious, something that could lead the country? And really that we started you know, having these conversations, I think, in last June. And so we spent about half the year just drafting this policy, uh, you know, having meetings every week uh, and having different Sunrise members and just kind of brainstorming different problems that we know in the community, uh, sending out emails and communicating to other organizations in El Paso, like um, in the grassroots move air spaces mm -hmm. to kind of collect notes and getting information about what they think we should do. And through that seven month process, we refined it to this. And a, a, lot, a lot of stuff ended up on the cutting room floor because we wanted to avoid, a, you know, getting struck down immediately with Texas being as restrictive as it is. Um, we, we're, we wish it was more ambitious in a lot of ways, but at the same time, we know it's very ambitious because climate directors and climate departments are a new concept as far as I'm aware. Uh, no city in the, in the country has that. And we, it's just very exciting to have the idea of El Paso becoming a leader and change, you know, changing that narrative because as it stands right now, El Paso is basically a dumping ground for mm -hmm. polluters. And so, yeah. yeah. And so now you're working on putting this, so you have this um, charter draft and now you're gathering the petitions you need in order to put it up to a vote, right? Before, Correct. before El Paso residents. So it's like, mm -hmm. you have to, you know, this is a state law in Texas. You have to, you know, garner X number of signatures and then it can go before voters, right? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly it. And yeah, I mean, it, it was born, part of it is just, we're used to saying no to things, you know, mm -hmm. like we say no to the buyout, say no to the power generator, but you know, you, you need, you need a, something to build towards you know, so give an alternative to people. And so that's why I, I'm, I'm very excited about this project and very happy to, Mike, to connect with Mike and Ground Game Texas and work on this together because we want to give El Paso an alternative and El Pasoans and give El Pasoans that power, you know, that direct democracy to say, this is what we want to do with our utilities, with our electricity. This is the future we want. Um, and, and really that it, it's our right to define those things. And I mean, electricity is a human right. People need electricity to live and function in the society. And, you know, we need it for hospitals. We need it for all kinds of things that, that we use, that we're used to now. And it, it's really unfair to think of this corporate dictatorship deciding our energy needs. Yeah, I, I love the idea of painting a vision. I do think that's something that a lot of times the environmental community can lack um, because it is so often 
about saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, so, so right now you're in this phase of collecting, of collecting signatures. How are you all doing it? Are you like out in the streets collecting things? Are you doing, do you have a door knocking campaign? Like what, what is this looking like? When do you hope you might be able to get this on the ballot? Yeah. So we're hoping to collect the, the total number of signatures we'll need by the end of May. Um, as far as the strategy goes, there has been some door knocking, but really the majority, the bulk of the signatures are coming from chasing crowds. Mm-hmm. And El, El Paso is different from Austin. There's no big parks where people, thousands of people gather every day. Um, it's more sprawling and segmented, very Southwestern mm-hmm. in nature. You know, you can tell that car culture dominated uh, right. the, the infrastructure here. So there was some struggle in kind of identifying where to find people because there's no one big place. So the university is, is, was just super reliable. Uh, a lot of young people are very aware and very scared about the future. So they were very on board. But um, we've also talked to people in cafes, uh, markets. Um, we've gone to even bars, um, parks as well. Even though they're not big crowds, you know, there's parks. There's still events uh, happening now that people are less scared of COVID. Um, so, so it's kind of a mix of all those things. There's no one like fixed place or fixed strategy. It's kind of just going with with whatever works that week and and letting organizers kind of, you know, figure it out together. Um, mark stores as well. I already mentioned markets, but just grocery yeah. stores, uh, malls. The uh, there's a few malls here, and it's kind of the kind of places where El Pasoans do go out and hang mm-hmm. out. That's kind of the places. Uh, we've done some block um, door knocking. We've knocked about 4,000 doors so far, but it's not been our, our you know, the main strategy is kind of a supplemental thing. And volunteers have helped us out a lot with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, cur- I'm curious. Yeah, I'm sorry. What, what like, what, what advice would you have for, um, people in other cities, maybe smaller towns that are thinking about doing something like this in their own community. And, and I also wonder what the response has been when you've talked to people like, and you're trying to get them to sign this. Yeah. So, I mean, for other cities looking to replicate this, please do. That's exactly what we love. You, we'd love to do that. We love, we, we would love to be an example. We would love for this to catch like wildfire, the idea of having you know, city charters, a part of the city charter dedicated in codifying environmental policy. Because, I mean, and I'm just going to throw this out here because this is one of the parts of the climate charter that I personally really like is the infrastructure resilience, which is something that should uh, every city in the country should be thinking about is identifying what kind of climate disasters they might be facing in the future and how to mitigate damage, not just to important infrastructure like hospitals, but to avoid you know, people being hurt or killed during this catastrophic events. But um, my, my, what I would say to other uh, cities looking into this or other communities looking into this is take whatever part of the charter that fits your uh, issues, take it, <laughs> just use it, please. Right. And um, what I would recommend is uh, the, I think the most important part of our process developing this is having that community feedback. Hmm creating these drafts and sending it out to different key communities that you know are the most affected and get their information, have their voice on the table and reflect that in the policy. 
Um, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, sorry, I kind of smushed two things together there. Um, but I'm curious what the response has been, you know, when you're going out and talking to people. Overwhelmingly supportive. Uh, El Pasoans are fed up and they are aware <laughs> of how bad things are here environmental wise. A lot of people, you know, they, they make comments like, I don't know why El Paso hasn't been doing more for um, the environment. They hear, you know, they know, they know that our, our city currently has about 5% of its energy coming from solar and we're one of the sunniest cities in the country. And it just, you know, it's kind of like common sense to them. It's like, why is, why is this not something we're taking advantage of a natural resource we have? Why are we not uh, already going solar? Um, a lot of people also talk about water conservation. Hmm. Um, going back to the infrastructure thing, uh, people are very upset about their water bills. We had a very heavy monsoon season. A lot of people's vehicles were damaged. A lot of parts of the city were flooded. Um, just because our infrastructure, e even with wasn't designed with our environment in mind. We live right next to a mountain in a valley and you know gravity dictates the water will go down. And there's these natural arroyos that the mountain has and we just kind of built over them and then like dammed them up with walls and stuff. Uh -huh. and, all sudden, and all of a sudden these, there's this horrible flooding. Oh my God, like who, how, who could have guessed? But um, the, there, was, there was massive um, parts of the, of, of the sewer system broke down and it caused this sewage spill overflow into our, our river. And um, they, this El Paso water has been charging us for drainage fees and, and these uh, repair fees for years. And then this happens and then our bills are going up further. So people, you know, people kind of mention all these things when they're signing. They're, they're like talking about all these problems that they're already facing, the smog that we see in the city. I mean, you can literally, if I go outside and look over the town, I can see the smog. And um, it's a lot of it is from the, the marathon, uh, the oil refinery, Marathon mm -hmm. Petroleum's here, which is another big problem here that I haven't even talked about yet, but there's a refinery in the middle of town, in the middle of a neighborhood and people are living next to it. And um, so, yeah, it's overwhelmingly positive, overwhelmingly like about time kind of, response a lot of the older people tend to to talk about how beautiful el paso used to be before all the all this industrialization from the 90s and just seeing the the deterioration of our environment over time over decades and so they're they, they express things like they wish that they hope that policy like this can lead to a time where our river is a river again you know, right now it's yeah. basically a dam mm -hmm. and it's dry most of the time. So the overwhelming response is hope, hope, hopefulness, uh, some weariness, but it has less to do with the policy itself and more just, uh, you know, the reality of, of being led on over and over and not seeing things change. Right. But there's an excitement in seeing young people uh, caring and wanting to do something about it. So I, I think it's, it's majority of that is that. Um, mm -hmm. Majority of the responses are like that, yeah. And that was Luis. And if you want to learn more about El Paso and the work they're doing with their climate charter movement, you can check out groundgametexas.org and you can also look up the Sunrise El Paso podcast on Spotify, 
which is an amazing podcast put together by Sunrise organizers that goes really deep into the climate charter and their fights against El Paso Electric. We'll include links to all of that, including any other resources we mentioned in this episode in the show notes of the podcast. And with that, I think that's pretty much our episode for today. Hopefully you got a good idea of climate plans, what they are, and how they work. Next week, we're going to start talking about how to actually implement those climate plans, which can be pretty tricky. So we'll be sharing stories of activists and organizers here in Austin, as well as across Texas, so you can see real people, not just politicians, who are making a difference on climate. I hope you'll tune in. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh